0: Um, This morning, um, I want to move on to another text, the one that is on the chair out there that most of you have. But before going on to that, I'd like to pick up what I didn't uh, finish yesterday. We were looking at this idea of how what the Buddha taught goes against the stream and to try to understand what he would have meant here by stream, sota. Sometimes this term is extended into mara sota, the stream of mara, mara being that which constricts and inhibits and binds us and renders us unfree and confused, a kind of death, a kind of inner death. We looked yesterday at how when we ask this question in terms of the Buddha's own culture, his own time, then what he was saying quite clearly went counter to many of the assumptions that informed the Upanishads, the Vedas, the classical Indian tradition that was the dominant worldview of his period. He breaks very radically with that. But I also said that what the Buddha meant by going against the stream refers also not to the specific context of India, but also to the human condition as such that what he seems to be saying goes against common sense or is counterintuitive. I'm slightly reluctant to use this word counterintuitive because inevitably people will ask, but isn't intuition a very important part of this process? That's true. But by intuitive here, I mean that which somehow seems self evident to us. Now, the Buddha addressed this um, in his teaching on three points. He recognized that human beings suffer from three primary distortions of perception, which he seeks to correct through the practice of the Dhamma. These are seeing what is impermanent as permanent, seeing what is dukkha, suffering, as sukha, happiness, Seeing what is not self as self. He recognizes, therefore, that intuitively human beings seem to be um, committed to the idea that there is something within us, something perhaps greater than us, that escapes from the law of transitoriness and change. In the midst of this fluid and fluctuating and contingent world, we feel that there is something non-fluid, non-fluctuating, non-changing and non-transient. The most common candidate is some sense of self that we, we intuitively sense that there is a, a permanent, unchanging witness, we might call it, that seems to stand outside and above and beyond the fluctuating world. And so the idea of not-self and the idea of impermanence are very closely aligned in fact, we might think of them as just different gestalt switches like the image you have, I'm sure you're familiar with, of you can either see an image of, of a vase, a symmetrical vase, or if you just blink you can see it as two faces looking one at the other. That model, I think, is a useful one. So Impermanence, not self, are really two uh, gestalts of the same thing. They're not two uh, different properties, things, but two ways in which we can uh, understand uh, this phenomenal world of which we are a part. We also tend, almost instinctively, to think of this world as an arena for gratifying ourselves, gratifying our senses, providing us with some kind of lasting well-being and comfort. Now again, we have to be careful here, and this I think is the use of the word intuitive. Rationally, if we are asked um, whether there is something permanent in the world or some possibility of eternal happiness in the world, we would probably say no, but intuitively that's not how we feel deep down things are, that our behaviour very often betrays our rational convictions, that we act and behave as though we will be around forever, we act and behave as though one day we'll sort our lives out to the point where we've got everything we want and we've gotten rid of everything we don't like. We have achieved the perfect situation. This is often revealed to us um, in those things we're not supposed to notice when we meditate, namely our fantasies our dreams, our daydreams. And how much of that is a longing or a, a representation of this longing for permanence, this longing for a final security, a longing for some permanent well-being in the midst of a world that we know quite well to be transient, to be shifting, to be unreliable. So in the Buddha is talking of of this, uh, this transformation of perception. He's talking not just of adopting a different set of beliefs and views. He's talking about attuning ourselves, training ourselves to experience the world intuitively. We're trying to, as it were, awaken a deeper intuition, one in which we are more and more attuned to the transience of things, to the poignancy, the unreliability, the tragedy of life, the pain of life. And likewise, when we go deeper still, to begin to dissolve this very strong conviction that lying back behind the scenes somewhere is a permanent ego, perhaps a permanent ego that will even escape our physical death, something that will just go on surviving, life after life. Now, in classical Buddhism, these misperceptions, these core errors, are said to have come to have been present since beginningless time. They are features of the mind, the deluded mind, that are deeply embedded within us, and we go from life to life carrying these misperceptions with us. I feel a more... um, a more compelling and convincing way of understanding the origins of these misperceptions lies as seeing them as the the legacy of um, certain patterns of belief and behavior that gave our early hominid ancestors survival advantages over other forms of life on Earth. I would understand them now as um, as, as, as deeply-seated intuitions that are rooted perhaps in our reptilian brain or at least in certain deep-seated neurological structures. They have been useful. That's why they're there. They've helped our ancestors to have a competitive edge over those who are competing for the same resources. I'm not going to go into this now, but that would be broadly speaking how I see it. But to these primary um, uh, uh, misperceptions, I think we can also add, um, and I think they build on the ones the Buddha mentions, the assumption that out there somewhere, or in here somewhere, there is a final, absolute, ultimate truth, something that lies beyond the impermanent, deceptive, and uncertain world, that there is something certain, something that is uncontaminated by the fluctuations and corruptions of this body whether we call that truth or certainty God, or whether we nowadays would be more likely to think of it as some kind of uh, transcendental uh, awareness or consciousness, Um, that too is, as it were, a very deeply seated intuition. And I think it is. um, we have evidence for that in in the ways in which many different religions throughout the world have come up with very similar kinds of beliefs, particularly beliefs in God. And in some ways, uh, the Vedanta or the Upanishads is a very clear exposition of this kind of intuitive religion, what seems deep down to be compelling and convincing and true. But here I think the Buddha parts company not only with Upanishadic tradition but also with this whole um, uh, all of these different forms of intuitive religion. The idea that there is some greater truth, something more permanent either deep within us or somehow out there beyond the conditioned world as such. The Vedanta um, expresses this very uh, clearly in recognizing the ultimate identity of Atman and Brahman. In other words, of the individual soul or self with what is sometimes called the para-Atman the over-self, the, uh, the, over the great-self, which is identical to Brahman. And in the passages I read yesterday, we saw how the aim of uh, spiritual practice was to bring this Atman into union with Brahman, thereby achieving um, a fundamental transcendent unity and liberation from the phenomenal world. But in doing so, the human and the fallible and the ambiguous and the tragic get left behind, get squeezed out, are somehow denied and ignored in favor of this more transcendent vision. Um, and I'll read another passage from, this is from the Brihad Aranyaka Upanishad where the questioner says, which self, <coughs> O Yajnya Valkya, who's a great Upanishadic sage, is within all? And Yajnya Valkya replies, you could not see the seer of sight, you could not hear the hearer Of hearing, nor perceive the perceiver of perception, nor know the knower of knowledge. This is thyself. This is yourself. In other words, the knower of knowledge, the perceiver of perception, the hearer of hearing, the seer of sight. This is thyself who is within all. Everything else is suffering. Now, what the Buddha is doing is uh, going completely against that. Instead of seeking this transcendent knower, the divine, the self, God, he concerns himself primarily with suffering. In other words, the condition we find ourselves in, in this world, in this body, in this place, here and now. And that leads us to the first discourse the Buddha gives. Remember that in the, the previous passage, um, there are two grounds, the ground which he calls conditioned arising and the ground which he calls uh, stopping the, uh, the stilling of all formations. And here too, we must be careful not to think that the Buddha is talking of two different things, conditioned arising and the stilling of formations. Again, I think the metaphor of, um, of the gestalt switch is useful, that this ground can be seen in one way as the stilling of formations, which is a more subjective way of looking at it, or with a switch of perception, it can be seen as conditioned arising. There's one single experience understood from two perceptual stances. So I didn't speak much about what we meant here by the stilling of all formations, the relinquishing of all bases, the fading away of craving, desirelessness, stopping Nibbana. And that's what I want to look at today and tomorrow. And to do that, I'm going to explore that idea as it's presented in the first discourse the Buddha gave after his awakening. And that's the text we have before us. Um, I'm not going to go into the, 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 the series of events that happened um, beneath the Bodhi tree while he's still at uh, Bot Gaya or Uruvela as it was called then, where Brahma appears to him and encourages him that there are people out there with little dust in their eyes who are uh, who, would, who, who would be able to understand the Dhamma. Now, I think probably what that means is Brahma uh, doesn't here mean God, uh, as some sort of extraterrestrial being who floats into Bodh Gaya and says, hey, get on with it. But rather, <laughs> Brahma is the arising within Uh, Siddhartha Gautama's experience of love, compassion, equanimity, joy, which are called the Brahma Viharas. So it's the first, it's a way of talking about this movement from a kind of inchoate um, experience into one in which he now is compelled out of his love for the world and for others who are suffering to communicate what it is that he has understood. So he goes off to Varanasi, Benares, uh, which would have taken him a couple of weeks by foot, and he tracks down five of his former companions in asceticism, and here he then, to them, gives this first discourse. And I'm going to read out the whole thing before we start to... uh, begin to analyze and try and figure out what it's about this is what I heard the Lord was dwelling at Baranasi in the deer park at Isipatana now called Sarnath. he addressed the group of five monks one gone forth does not pursue two extremes which two Indulgence in sense pleasure, which is low, vulgar, ordinary, uncivilized, is actually a better translation, and meaningless. And indulgence in self-mortification, which is painful, uncivilized, and meaningless. The Tathagata, in other words, himself, has awoken to a middle path that does not lead to either of these extremes. It is a path that generates vision and awareness. It leads to tranquility, insight, awakening and release. It has eight branches, true seeing, true thought, true speech, action, livelihood, resolve, mindfulness and true concentration. This is the noble truth of anguish. Birth is painful. Aging is painful. Sickness is painful. Death is painful. Encountering what is not dear is painful. Separation from what is dear is painful. Not getting what one wants is painful. In short, the five clinging Clusters, the five aggregates are painful are anguished this is the noble truth of the origin of anguish the craving that leads to repeated existence given over to delight and lust keenly indulging in this and that that is craving for stimulation craving for existence craving for non-existence. This is the noble truth of the cessation of anguish, the traceless fading away and cessation of that craving, the letting go and abandoning of it, freedom and independence from it. This is the noble truth of the path that leads to the cessation of anguish, the path with eight branches, true seeing, thought, speech, action, livelihood, resolve, mindfulness, concentration. Such is anguish. It can be fully known. It has been fully known. Such is the origin of anguish it can be relinquished, it has been relinquished. Such is the cessation of anguish, it can be experienced, it has been experienced. Such is the path that leads to cessation, it can be created, it has been created. So there arose in me vision, awareness, intelligence, knowledge, and illumination about things previously unknown. As long as my knowledge and vision was not entirely clear in all these ways about the reality of the Four Truths, I did not claim to have had a peerless awakening in this world with its humans and celestials, its gods and devils, its ascetics and priests. Only when my knowledge and vision was clear in all these ways did I claim to have had such awakening. The knowledge and vision arose within me. The freedom of my mind is unshakable. This is the last birth. There is no more repeated existence. This is what the Lord said. Inspired, the five monks delighted in the Lord's words. And while this discourse was being spoken, the dispassionate, stainless Dharma eye arose in the Venerable Kondanya, who said, Whatever originates is something that ceases. <clears throat> now we can see um, quite clearly that um, this is framed within the the soteriological worldview of the Upanishadic tradition. Um, It's framed in terms of uh, the uh, idea of multiple lifetimes and the goal very much being um, the, uh, the freedom from repeated existence. Um, but let's just remind ourselves of how, of the particular approach I'm taking um, to understand these texts. What is it that the Buddha said that is distinctively his own view? And the first criterion for coming to that understanding is to bracket off whatever is found in the pre-existent tradition. Now, you'll find expressions like the freedom of my mind is unshakable, this is the last birth, there is no more repeated existence. This is a reiteration, quite the same sort of statement that one would find um, in the, Upana, in, in the Upana Upanishads. This is simply the way at that time of how one um, would say, say in a Christian culture, I am saved. So we can put that aside. I'm not going, we must be careful here, I'm not saying therefore that is somehow wrong or false, but it's of another order of truth. It's, it's, it, 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 it reflects the world of which he is a part. So we can put it to one side. I mean, what I'm getting at, I suppose, is trying to find out um, what a discourse like this has to say about how we live in this world here and now. And there are two quite um, uh, contrasting uh, emphases we find in the Pali Canon. On the one hand, you find passages which are very much about Liberation from birth and death, the attainment of nirvana, um, as the, the, this uh, uh, putting an end to suffering by basically not getting another body. But then we have many other passages which emphasize the importance of um, an understanding and awakening in this life here and now, in this very life, is an expression used again and again. The passages we looked at from the Satipatthana Sutta, the discourse on the grounding of mindfulness, likewise, go into a forest, sit at the root of a tree, know when you're breathing out long, know when you're breathing in short, when you're walking, sitting, standing lying. This is very much coming into a far more intimate, Uh, and deep awareness of your phenomenal experience here and now. My sense is that um, even by the time the Pali Canon was organized, we had conflicting um, agendas at work. Amongst some of those monks who were more concerned with the immediacy and the direct relevance of these ideas and practices, as a way to live more fully and totally in this world, as opposed to the other agenda, which was that of the Indian religious culture, to see the Buddha's teaching as just another strategy to achieve the same goal of liberation from birth and death. I'm interested in the former, and I'm going to bracket the second agenda, because I feel what is distinctive in the Buddha's teaching, is this concern with the here and now, and how to live in this world. We also have, um, and I'm starting at the back here a bit, another very clear account of what the Buddha means by this word, awakening here he says it very explicitly, as long as my knowledge and vision was not entirely clear in all these ways about the reality of the four truths, I did not claim to have had a peerless awakening. Now once again, um, this awakening is not reducible to some kind of transcendent experience as we would find in the Upanishads. But in fact, this awakening has to do with um, Uh, with four truths, not just one, four, it has to do with uh, a a complex um, experience of all these various dimensions of life. It's certainly not a mystical experience in which one has privileged access to some higher or absolute or transcendent truth. There's no sense of that at all. There's a lot of confusion, I feel, around this, the way the word enlightenment is used nowadays. Um, there's a general assumption that all the Indian traditions are concerned with enlightenment. But as far as I'm aware, nowhere in the Upanishads or in the Vedanta, Is the word bodhi ever used? The word we would literally translate as awakening. The term that is commonly used would be that of moksha, liberation. The Buddha, as I said yesterday, used this word awakening quite deliberately to contrast what he was concerned with in terms of the, in contrast to the concerns of the pre-existing tradition. It's quite a different idea. Uh, But very often today, um, it's all blurred up. We talk of whether, is that person enlightened? Is that guru enlightened? Is that lama enlightened? Failing to ask what is really the much more important question, enlightened about what? Now, the Buddha makes it very clear here that his awakening And he does use the metaphor of light. He says, uh, there arose in me vision, awareness, knowledge, and illumination, light. But the key metaphor is awakening. And what he awoke to was conditioned arising. And now he speaks of that in terms of the four truths. What the link between the two texts we're looking at is in the first text, he he speaks just of conditioned arising. And now he speaks of the four ennobling truths. What's the link between those two? Is there not some contradiction here? Not at all. If we take conditioned arising to be, let's say, the E equals MC squared of the Dhamma, it's like the core... Um, algorithm from which the rest of the teaching is then derived, then the first uh, step from translating the principle conditioned arising into a practice and a process of living occurs from the experience of awakening beneath the tree to his first articulation, his first giving voice to this experience in the park at Sarnath. So when we translate conditioned arising, this gives rise to that. In the absence of this, that does not occur. When that is articulated into a form of practice, we find a middle way and then the four ennobling truths. And that's what I want to explain. How are these four truths and embodiment or an extension of the principle of conditioned arising. The four truths represent a process of interconnected phases, one which leads organically to the next. The first truth is the condition for the second, the second for the third, the third for the fourth. It's a process. And the fourth when we get to this path, then turns around and comes back again to the first truth. It's a feedback loop. Now, some of you might be saying, well, wait a minute, that doesn't seem to be how these four truths are arranged at all. Doesn't he start with suffering, then goes to the cause of suffering, then goes to the end of suffering, and then goes to the path that leads to the end of suffering. We don't have a sequence of of cause, effect, cause, effect, cause, effect. In fact, we have rather the opposite of that. He starts with the effect, suffering, then he considers the cause. Then he talks of the end of suffering, and then he goes back to the cause. Instead of cause, effect, cause, effect, we have effect, cause, effect, cause. What's going on here? A question that um, has engaged me for many years uh, from my first encounter with Buddhism is why are the four truths laid out in that sequence? Wouldn't it make more sense, my rational Western self would say we start with the origin of suffering then that leads us to an understanding of suffering itself that then leads to the possibility of engaging with a path which leads to the cessation of suffering which surely is the end of the process why didn't he organize it that way And I feel it's useful to think about that. And what I think that shows is that there is the assumption that the end of the process is actually nirvana, is the cessation of suffering. It's the no longer taking of rebirth. And that, of course, would fit within the broad picture of classical Indian soteriology. I'm sorry to use this long complicated word but it's the best one. Soteriology means, uh, soter in Greek means uh, liberation or salvation and logos means thinking about or speaking about salvation. After a number of years um, and again, largely through the writings of a man called Nyanavira Viratera, who was an English monk who lived and died in Sri Lanka. Um, he died in 1965. Um, who wrote a book called Clearing the Path. Um, and there were a number of points he made in that text, which I found, I, I found extraordinarily helpful. And one of the points he makes is that These four truths are not things to be understood or known, but these four truths are injunctions on which we are asked to act. That, I think, is, to me, the key to understanding this text. Again, with our kind of um, platonic inheritance, the idea that religion, or spirituality is about finding ultimately what is true. And remember, in the Buddha's account of um, his awakening, there's no mention of knowing truth at all. It's about a shift of perspective. That likewise, in these four truths, the word truth here doesn't mean truth in the way we often think of it. In other words, what is really real as opposed to what is merely apparent. But truth here is being used more in terms of what actually helps, what actually is useful, what works. Now for some of us, we might notice that this is in fact the definite definition of truth employed by the school of philosophy called pragmatism whose foremost exponent is the great American philosopher John Dewey. And more recently, um, it's in the writings of Richard Rorty. I'm not going to get into this because it's kind of abstract. But I feel that the Buddha is essentially a pragmatist. He's not concerned with what is true. He's concerned with what leads us to living a richer, more free, more awakened more fulfilling, more creative, and more compassionate life in this world. In other words, what works? So his injunctions, these four truths, we need to think of as injunctions or suggestions to do something, not to just gain access to some privileged reality. In Nyanavira's writings he gives a very good analogy of this. He says it's like when Alice goes down the rabbit's hole in Alice in Wonderland and she comes to a room on which is a table and on the table is a bottle and the bottle has a label on it that says drink me. (laughs) Nowadays uh, or it doesn't happen so much nowadays but when you get your computer software, there's sometimes a file that appears on your desktop which says, read me. (laughs) Now, this doesn't tell you anything about what's the content of the file any more than drink me tells you about what's in the bottle. It's telling you to do something, not giving you information about a content. Now... The same is true with these Four Noble Truths, and this is quite explicit. The key to these truths, the key to understanding how they work, is found on the second page, in the indented passage, where the Buddha says, such is anguish, it can be fully known. Such is the origin of anguish, it can be relinquished. Such is the cessation of anguish, it can be experienced. Such is the path, it can be created. Now for each truth, there is a corresponding action. In other words, each truth requires that we do something with it that is distinctive to that particular truth. So it's as though when we experience suffering, let's say, a needle-like pain in the knee, we should see on that needle-like pain a little sticker, a little post-it, that says, know me. (laughs) Whereas normally, it's as though it has a sticker on it saying, avoid me, (laughs) get rid of me. The Buddha, again, is turning our intuitions on it's on their head and this is a profoundly counterintuitive move he's saying okay we want to be happy we want well-being and peace and joy what do we how 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 do we get there we go deeply into pain we know dukkha not common sense probably the last place we would tend to look if we're looking for happiness, is in suffering. But again, we must be careful The suffering is not the end of the process. It's the beginning. It allows us to come to an entirely new relationship with our experience in this world. And it starts by fully knowing anguish or pain or dukkha. That leads quite naturally, to the falling away, to the dropping off, to the letting go of grasping. I'm going to explain this in more detail. And that falling away, that relinquishing of grasping, leads to moments when the grasping stops. And in the stopping of that grasping, there opens up the possibility of entering and creating a path. So when we think of these four truths in terms of being four actions rather than four things to believe, then we find that the sequence makes sense. We can sum it up almost as a kind of series of slogans. Fully no-suffering let go of grasping, experience stopping, create a path. The aim, therefore, of the process is not nirvana or cessation or liberation or transcendence, but it is the creating of a path, the bringing of a path into being, And again, unfortunately, in most translations, this word bhavana is translated as meditation or mental development. Whereas in fact it means creation, to bring something into being. And again, it um, allows us also to understand the symmetry, both of this text, and the symmetry of the Buddha's teaching. I mentioned earlier that He starts his teaching which is this text itself by saying the Tathagata has woken to a middle path that does not lead to either of these two extremes. The primacy is the path and then he says what is this path and he describes the eight aspects of it seeing, thinking, speech, action and so on. And then in his very final discourse or teaching as he's lying beneath the two sal trees in Kushinagar shortly before he dies, he receives his last disciple, the monk called Subada, and explains to him that his teaching is found wherever one finds the Eightfold Path. I will argue that once we've bracketed off Upanishadic Soteriology about attaining liberation and transcendence and nirvana, that in fact what the Buddha is saying that is uh, distinctive is that the aim of his teaching is the creation of a path. And paths are created not in some transcendent realm, but here and now on this earth, in this body, in this community, in this society, in this environment. And paths are not just spiritual exercises, but they entail all of our humanity, as the Buddha says, seeing, thinking, speaking, acting, working. The Buddha has a vision of a way of life that engages all of us. It's not reducible to some kind of uh, spiritual, uh, spiritually privileged activities like meditation. I feel it's extraordinarily pu- important uh, for us in our society which does not value meditation and mindfulness and awareness that we give that far more emphasis but we must be careful not to think that that's what it's all about and the rest is a kind of optional add-on So let's go back to the beginning of the text. Um, Tomorrow I'm going to go in much more detail through this process, but I'll just begin this today. Um, Before he actually declares his middle path, he identifies two extremes. And one of those extremes is a life lived um, compulsively and exclusively towards the gratification of se- of, of the senses in other words um, an endless pursuit of pleasure and perhaps our, our modern Western consumerist societies have have, 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 have achieved uh, a way of life in which that indulgence can be maximized. But probably if we have chosen to spend a week um, at a meditation retreat in silence, then we probably have come to the conclusion that that doesn't quite work. That there's something about this endless pursuit of pleasure that leads us to the awareness and the understanding that we just keep going round and round and round, uh, getting this enjoyment, that pleasure, this gratification, that stimulation, this love affair, this great attainment and job promotion or whatever. And yet at the end of the day, we actually haven't resolved uh, in any meaningful sense uh, the, uh, the, the, the question we have as to what it means to be human. We still uh, suffer from those same existential anxieties. We're aware that we're going to die. We become, as we grow older, aware of the breakdown of our bodies, our being subjected to sickness, to aging, to sudden death. And no matter of sense gratification is really going to address those issues at all. In fact, we might begin to realize that our chasing after fleeting pleasures is a way of avoiding the bigger questions of birth and death. It's a kind of flight, a kind of escape, a kind of uh, distancing ourselves from those deeper feelings that in moments of solitude, when we're lying awake at night, or when a close friend or relative has died, we find ourselves thrown into. And these moments can often be extremely painful, but at the same time, we also glimpse that there's something very true about them. This is somehow far more real. may not like it, but there's something very real, something very um, almost rich about these moments. We feel perhaps more fully alive, more fully human when we embrace sickness, aging, death. So the Buddha's path is one that um, uh, recognizes the futility of simply spending our lives chasing after pleasure. This doesn't mean, though, as is sometimes thought, that we need to swing over to the other extreme and start becoming um, rather uh, harsh and cruel to ourselves in denying ourselves pleasure. And this is what is usually translated as indulgence in self-mortification, now, the usual examples given are of yogis in ancient India who would spend 15 years standing on one leg or doing some kind of uh, extreme bodily um, punishment uh, as a means to train themselves to transcend or go beyond the pain that they're experiencing, to achieve some kind of uh, disassociation, effectively, from the body. Um, But that, I think, is a rather superficial reading of self-mortification. I doubt any of us have been tempted to stand on one leg for 15 years. But we do lots of moral and spiritual equivalence. Um, We perhaps begin to cultivate a certain self-hatred uh, we begin to despise parts of ourselves, the part of ourselves that we see as, as craving and clinging and grasping, and this becomes demonized. And we think of our, uh, our search for pleasure or our attraction for these things as somehow wrong, as somehow unspiritual, as somehow evil. And so we try to, to sort of stamp all that down. And we assume a rather Uh, severe and ascetic demeanor. We don't become such smiling people anymore. Uh, We feel that if there is no pain, there is no gain. And in all manner of things, we begin to deny ourselves. We begin to, uh, in a way, punish ourselves. And I think for many of... I mean, I think what's happened in, in the West now is that this becomes uh, internalized uh, to forms of uh, a kind of self-revulsion which may manifest as all kinds of, of pathologies. Maybe anorexia, bulimia might be examples of that. A sense that we're not somehow good enough. A sense that we don't quite make the mark, that we don't live up to the standards of others. So this is really just the the opposite, the the counter-image of this uh, self-indulgence. A middle way is one that avoids both. Um, I mentioned also that um, the word ignoble I would now translate as uncivilized. Uh, The word in Pali is gamma. And gama literally means village. Um, we might in America say gama means hick-like. <laughs> <laughs> but what it points to is that, is that the Buddha's um, uh, teaching and practice was one that was very much uh, centered in urban society. Again, in Zen particularly, Our our teacher, for example, used to say that the Buddha leaves home and then he goes off into the Himalayas and he sits in a cave and he meditates, which is a popular image. But the Buddha, in fact, did the exact opposite. He could have wandered up into the Himalayas, but he actually went down into the heart of the urban civilization of his day. He went to Rajgir, which was the equivalent of New York. It's a bit like Bob Dylan, who um, leaves Hibbing, Minnesota, stops off in Minneapolis for a bit, and then heads for the Big Apple. The Buddha did exactly the same. He left, basically, a rural backwater, went to the first nearest big city, Vaishali, or nearby, and then headed to Magadha and to Rajgir. And after the awakening too, after he had preached this discourse, he then goes back to Rajgir. He goes back to the equivalent of the Big Apple. And that's where he establishes his first community. And then his other largest community he establishes in the next big city of the day. He's supported in many respects more by the emergent mercantile middle classes than by farmers and peasants. In other words, he sees what he's doing as a civic or civilizing movement, one that's concerned with a society that's gone, that's moved out of simple agrarian subsistence living, and has come to um, uh, to live primarily um, in more complex urban societies, quite similar in their day to the sorts of urban civilization we have now. So again, he's not uh, cutting himself off from the world by going up into the Himalayas, but rather he sees his teaching as addressing the concerns of people in post-agrarian society. And this again is one more (coughs) indication of how His concern is with the world as it is, the world as it is evolving at his time, and going straight into the heart of that, rather than, um, as we often do find in the Upanishads and and some of these other more ascetic traditions, the, the rishis and so on, retreat from the urban environments into the mountains. The Buddha goes the opposite way. It's worth bearing that in mind, that his uh, middle way is a middle way that he doesn't see as the exclusive um, uh, domain of the renunciant, but rather as something that is practiced in the midst of the hustle and the bustle of daily life. But we'll stop here, and tomorrow um, I'll go through these four truths in terms of there being four um, injunctions and four activities, one which leads to the next and culminates in the creation of a path. Thank you.